Hello, I feel like I probably should introduce myself. Um, I'm Andrew Hurd. I used to go to church a while ago and I've decided to come back again. Um, now, some of you may not be aware that I've actually been away. I'm, I, some of you may, I'm actually the senior minister of the church if you've had a, no clue who I am. And, uh, but I've, we've had an extended time away. I was doing some ministry in England and, uh, and then we had a break after that and so we've only just got back. Um, but thank you for your prayers. I know that many of you were praying and uh, we dare believe that the Lord used our efforts while we're overseas and so thank you for that and we had a good break as well and um, though Australia's a long way from anywhere if you come back from anywhere to come here again it's exhausting so we've come back and we're trying to recover from the trip now but there we are but great to be with you and great to um, uh, wrestle with the scriptures together so how about I pray and jump in and do that well Heavenly Father we do thank you uh, for the great privilege to gather around your word uh, to sing praises to pray to you Uh, to encourage one another and to hear you speak to us in the scriptures and we ask please tonight that uh, you might cause this word to be um, a lamp to our feet to give us insight and understanding help us to be able to to live in light of it lives that please you and honor you and we ask it in Jesus name amen well I went to Barbie this week there you go there's the sermon oh did you go to Barbie? Yes. It's joy, isn't it? I I I went alone. I just, no, I went with my wife, but uh, yeah, yeah. I went three times. How many times did you go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good on you. Um, yeah, so I, Kathy and I went to watch. Um, Barbie the movie this Thursday night at Erina and um, uh, who's been? Wow, who's, who's never heard of the movie? Yeah, I mean it's just, it's, it's amazing isn't it? And uh, uh, we, we went, uh, let me give you some impressions, to be honest uh, I fell asleep twice. <laughs> yeah, I, little, you know, naps, and Kathy would go like this, and I'd, whoa, whoa. Um, because, man, the chairs, I haven't been to the movies for you, the chairs at Erina, like you push a button, and the backrest goes back, and the legs go up, and you, I, how can he not sleep in a chair like that? So I, uh, anyway, it was a beautiful experience. Um, but uh, the, the other impression, uh, confusion. Uh, there were so many different messages, so many conflicting messages in the movie. Um, it was a movie that, you know, was set up to be against objectifying women, to be about them just being their bodies. And yet, um, one of the main drivers of the movie was the fact that she had cellulite, and that was horrific. Do you know? I mean, it was her thoughts of death and a few other things that kind of kicked it all off, but then she found she had cellulite and her feet couldn't fit in high heels anymore. And so, you know, it's against objectifying, but the whole thing has this undertone of objectifying women. It was just conflicting, confusing. Um, it, it, it made a, a deal of not being against motherhood, that, you know, women can choose to be mums. And there was a Barbie once that was a pregnant Barbie. <laughs> Discontinued. But, uh, you know... it. it it's, that's not bad, but the opening scene of the movie was a bunch of girls destroying their baby dolls so that they don't have to pretend to be mums anymore, playing at mums, because the Barbies arrived and we can now play at being adult women together. And so we're not against motherhood, but the whole opening scene was destructive of dolls that were about 
girls enjoying motherhood. It was just conflicting, confusing, and there are other things like this, which meant it's a kind of movie that you can find whatever you want to find in it. If you want to find a critique of this, you'll find it, but then the movie will be able to say, no, we didn't critique because we were doing... So it was just lots of confusing messages. Um, other impressions? I thought it had some really helpful pieces. And I, I, I think it, um, there was lots of pieces in it that were really helpful for women to reflect on, for men to reflect on. It was a very thoughtful movie in many ways. But it also had some very problematic pieces. Uh, And I want to deal with both of those things together tonight. Now you might, I hope you're asking the question, why? Why are we talking about a movie in church? Why are we talking about Barbie? We have the very words of God himself. Why are we bothering to talk about something that you can see in the picture theatre when we have God speaking in the scriptures? Now that is a good question. Um, And uh, let me give you an answer. (laughs) The reason being is because the best I can tell, the Barbie movie is not just a movie. It's a cultural phenomena. I mean, I've not seen the same kind of noise around a movie that that this has kind of created in the last little while. People are talking about it. Everyone's writing reviews about it. Um, And it's not just a movie, it's a sermon. It was a sermon by a feminist writer on the question of men and women... And the thing that the the movie intentionally preaches a sermon on how to be a woman, how to be a man, how to be men and women in this world, how to be who you are in this world. It was an intentional message about life in this world, what it is and how to be what we are in this world. It wasn't just entertainment. And as I say, I fell asleep a couple of times, so I'm not sure it was even entertaining, but it was a sermon about how to be men and women. And this is exactly what the chapter of the Bible we're looking at tonight is preaching on. So providentially, in the very week that we are set to read chapter 2 of Genesis and reflect on it together, which is a chapter about men and women what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, why are we here, how are we to relate together. On the chapter that's dealing with exactly those topics, we have for the last fortnight, the world around us speaking to exactly those topics. And speaking to exactly those topics a very different way. So the world, the, the secular sermon, the Barbie sermon on the exactly same topic, preached a very different message than the Bible preaches. Now you, you get that, don't you? These two things are just com- very much at odds. Not completely, because I think there are some good things in it, but, but very much at odds. Barbie is given to us as an alternative to the Bible. Not just different, but self-consciously different. The Barbie movie is written by a feminist writer to present a feminist ideology of men and women and how we're to live together in life and how that will make life much better if we do that. And it's done in a way that's actually self-consciously unpicking the biblical worldview and how the Bible calls men and women to be together. It's not just accidental. Now, it's not aggressive, it's not, it's not malicious, but it certainly is self-consciously pursuing a different path. The thing, therefore, as Bible readers is that we, we, need, to, we need to know what the Bible teaches. I mean, it's just very obvious. We, we need to know what the Bible, what God says. But I want to suggest to you, uh, at another level, we also need to know why the Bible says what it says. Why is it that God 
presents men and women to be like this, this way. And why is that different to the way the world presents it? What's going on in the way the world thinks that it thinks so differently? Because I tell you, it's important to know what the Bible says, but the more we know what's going on underneath the surface of it all, we'll understand why God says what he says. Now, we can't always know why God says, and so you trust him. But to understand why he says what he says, why it makes so much sense, why it's such a good message, is profoundly important for us to live in a world that's opposed to the Bible. So you can live thoughtfully and intentionally and help people around you understand and have clarity. So my plan tonight is to consider Genesis 2, uh, just what it says, take us through Genesis 2 fairly quickly, I hope, and then dig into why it says what it says and dig into why the differences between the Barbie world and the Bible world. So that's where we're going. And I wish we had time for questions. I'm not sure we'll have time. We've got about three hours of content, so we're going to have to, we're going to, have to rush through. But let me go, gra- grab your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Let's look together at it. Um, what you have from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, is a transition point. Uh, we looked last week at the first chapter up to chapter 2, verse uh, 3, the six days of creation the rest day on, uh, on the seventh day. And verse 4 is kind of like a summary and a move forward. Look what he says. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I want you to notice a couple of things. It's almost like a wrap-up, uh, This the, the account of the cosmic creation. But then there's a shift into chapter 2. And you notice two little things alert us to there's being a shift as we come into chapter 2. Do you notice how the words heavens and earth shift order so in verse 4 it begins with account of the heavens and the earth and then it shifts to the earth and the heavens and what I want to suggest happens from verse 5 onwards is that the author now takes us into another look at the creation events but from a closer perspective from the perspective of earth up rather than the cosmos down Chapter 1 was the big flyover of the God of the universe, the, the God who is, always has been, creating by a word, everything that exists. And now chapter 2, what happens is we kind of step back from that, focus just in on day 6, the creation of men and women and their relationship together. It's like the third umpire in a sporting event. Why have we lost everything this weekend? except swimming, I'm assuming we've gone well, but we've lost every other game. Um, but um, what you've got is the third umpire who kind of uh, calls on the, you know, the, 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 the focus in on that particular activity, and that's what chapter 2 is. Um, now, it progresses by a series of problem solutions. So what it begins with is a problem, solving it, and then another problem, and solving it. So that's how the chapter moves forward. Look at verse 5, the problem. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, uh, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. Just notice, too, the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Verse 4 and 5 is the first occasion where that word, the personal name of God, is introduced into the Bible. And what we have here is the cosmic Elohim God of all things, now being seen the personal God involved intimately with humanity. Um, But the problem is... No plant had sprung up and the reason being, there's two reasons giving, uh, the Lord hadn't sent rain and there was no one to work the ground. 
So the reason there was no plant was there was no one to work the ground and no rain. There's the problem. The solution is given and the solution is, uh, verse 7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Problem, no man, to, there's no plants, so, no plants in the field, so the Lord God uh, creates a man to till the soil and make it possible for the plants to spring up. Now, what I want you to notice here is uh, that we are now... When in chapter 1 you talk about... Um, have a flyover and see in day six God creates humanity, male and female he made them, in the image of God he made them. What we find is when you focus in on closer into that event of God creating humanity, he does it with a particular order, he creates the male man first, then the woman. And that's a significant piece that's picked up by Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy 2, he makes uh, a significant uh, consequence of that, the order of man-woman creation. But what you have uh, is human, man is made in a special way, though he's made, verse 7, like all the animals from the dust of the ground, the animals are raised up from the earth, he's made from the dust of the ground, though he, we are made of ordinary stuff, he breathes into the nostrils of the man the breath of life. Now, all the animals have the breath of life breathed in them as well, but... Um, Humanity has that experience by virtue of a very intimate God who comes close, who gives the kiss of life to man and brings him uh, to, to, to live. What you have here, therefore, is a reminder, which you see in chapter 1, that, that humanity is God's special creation. We are made like the animals of the same stuff, but we are made uniquely among the animals... We are the only ones who bear the image of God and we're the only ones that God comes close to and breathes the breath of life into. And this is not just Adam, it's actually every human, Psalm 139. God says that every single one of you tonight was intentionally and purposely conceived by God in the womb and he wove you together. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, every single one of you. None of you is an accident. Every one of you is alive because God wanted you to be alive. He wanted to be close with you and walk with you. It's a profoundly wonderful truth the Bible teaches about how, how full of dignity you each are. No one around you may give you that sense, but the Bible says your life is sacred, it's precious and special. In those moments when you feel despair and you may wonder whether anyone does love you, cling to these truths that you were made intentionally. No one else may care, but God does. He has made every life like this. Which therefore means uh, humanity uh, being unique and special, we have, a, we have the important concern about human rights. It comes from the Bible. That no other religion has given rise to human rights. It's biblical. Uh, we have a special concern for men and women and their equality. It's come from the Bible. It didn't emerge from anywhere else. The Christian faith gave us these wonderful truths that we take for granted. God then creates a garden in the wilderness of the world and he, uh, verse 8, he sets the man in it. And the nature of the garden that he makes, verse 9, is that it's got trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. There were two trees in the middle, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll look at that next week. Um, 
Uh, God, verse 10, makes sure that this garden is richly watered. Uh, the whole intention of these words is to remind us that God not only is the sovereign creator, but he's a good creator. He, he gives abundantly out of his grace. He loves his creature so much, he, he, he creates a paradise for, for the man to live in. Uh, this, of course, uh, sets us up for chapter 3. When the fall occurs in chapter 3, we're meant to see the horror of it because humanity not only rebels against their creator, they rebel against their good creator, the one who has given them everything. So the tragedy of it is multiplied. So the first problem, uh, no plant, it needs a man to work the ground, God solves it by creating the man. But there's a second problem that emerges in verse 18. Keep moving through the text. It is not good for the man to be alone. Problem. Solution. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now that language of it's not being good for the man to be alone is uh, all the more stark and the focus is actually put on it very heavily because up until this point, everything, every time God has talked about creation, he's talked about it being good, 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 very good. And now he says, this is the first time we have, there's something that's not good. And what is not good is that man is alone. His solution, verse 18, is to make a helper suitable for him. Now, that's significant language, though it needs some care. Helper suitable for him. It anticipates the relationship of men and women, that it's not, a, it's not, not symmetrical. It's not symmetrical. There's an asymmetry to the relationship of men and women. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Well, there's a, it, it, he needs this helper and so verse 19 to 20, the Lord parades before uh, Adam all the creatures uh, that he has made and uh, the man gives all the names to the creatures. The giving names to, to something is an act of dominion which Adam exercises, authority as he names. But with the parade of animals, there's no animal that's found suitable to be his helper. Um, it certainly makes very clear that there's no other creature that can can solve this issue. Man's need is not found in the animal kingdom. And so, uh, verse 21, the Lord God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he's sleeping, he takes one of the man's ribs, closes it up and creates the woman from the rib, uh, the rib that he had taken out of the man and brings the woman to the man. And the man bursts forth and says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, I want to suggest, actually, that when the woman is brought to the man, he didn't just say those words, I think he sang them. I think it was bursting forth in song. This is now bone of... I don't know how it rhymes or anything in Hebrew, but there you are. One comedian's actually said that um, uh, when Adam saw Eve, he didn't say, she shall be called woman. He said, whoa, man. Yeah, anyway, there you are. But... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, oh, whew, she, is, she is hot, <laughs> you know, like, and uh, she's awesome. And, and so what's, what's lovely here is that um, the man delights, he delights in what God has made, in the woman who has been brought to, to him. And don't miss this, she is special. She's special. When Adam is created, there's one verse given to it. God made him. When the woman's created, 
There's a whole bunch of verses and sentences that go along with it and the response of Adam and so on. Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 11 and talks about woman as the glory of man. She is the, she is the glory of man. You know, man is one thing, but God really got it right when he made woman. You know, it's that kind of, that kind of picture. There's something very precious and wonderful about this. Now, the implications flow for their relationship. Verse 24, that's why, it's, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and the two become... Why? Because God has made a woman from his side to be alongside him. He has made a woman of the same stuff as Adam to be equal with Adam. He has made someone who fits his need perfectly. And so that's why he leaves his father and mother. and his, That's why he, and I want you to notice this, that's why he forms a new family. He leaves off other relationships and, and, and um, puts behind him the priority of other relationships for the sake of creating a new family where his relationship with this woman is the most important relationship humanly that he has. And then the consequence of this is that they are united and become one flesh. We'll come back to that because it's a profoundly wonderful thing. It anticipates Christ and the church, Ephesians 5. Um, and, uh, and I want to suggest to you what makes it possible for that unity, that oneness, is heterosexual realities. And we'll come back to that. And then what occurs, verse 25, is that the Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame, which is a picture of their confidence and trust in each other, their vulnerability and openness with each other. There was nothing to fear, there was no shame. It's a beautiful expression of a man and woman together in a harmonious, trusting relationship. Now, that's God's ideal. It's hard to live after the fall. We'll look at that next week, but that's what God intended. Now, there's the what race through the text and show you some particular pictures out of it. Let's dig into a few pieces from it um, and take some care with this. Uh, in fact, uh, you have to take care because some of the ideas here, if you, if you read them superficially, will trigger you to think wrong thoughts, which I might say is the problem with the movie. What I've noticed is there's been lots of reactions to the Barbie movie, particularly by men, where they seem to have been triggered and they're not, I don't think they're paying attention to what really was going on in the movie. They've just picked up a few things and reacted and got angry about it all. You just need to be careful to read sympathetically the things you're listening to. And if you're new to the Bible, I'd urge you to, do, to pay the same respect to the Scriptures, to read it sympathetically. Don't let it trigger you, but think more deeply. Let me give a couple of examples of this. Have a look there in chapter 1, uh, verse 26. Let's take two examples. The Lord said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he may rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky and so on and so forth. You get it again in verse 28. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over. Now think with me. Rule over, subdue. If you're an unsympathetic reader, how might you read that language? How might you think uh, about the role that men and women have over creation? What might it look like if you read it unsympathetically? Does that make sense? Give us your thoughts. Controlling. Controlling. Nice. Rule over. What's the worst way of reading that that you could read? Tyrannical. Tyrannical. Nice. Abusive. 
abusing. Yeah, 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 good, helpful, all good words. Um, and so, so an unsympathetic reading means, uh, yes, here's where, here's where the problem is. God has created humanity and given them the rule over instead of uh, respecting creation, they've dominated and, had, and ruled over it. Now, the thing you want to pick up is, have a look at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And take care of it. That's the key piece. When the Bible talks about rule and dominion and authority, it never imagines that's to be exercised for the sake of the one doing the ruling. It's never for their selfish ambition. It's always to be exercised for the sake of the good of those ruled, or that that's ruled, to take care of. This is exactly what Jesus does in the New Testament. He critiques pagan thinking, which is post-Genesis 3 thinking, kind of post-the-fall thinking, sinful thinking, that imagines if I've got authority, then the role of my authority is to use and abuse it for the sake of my ends. And he says, no, 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 that's how the pagans live. They lord it over others. Not so with you, he says. Anyone who's to be first is last. So what the Bible does is keep saying, no, you've got to recalibrate. Whenever you see the word rule and authority, it doesn't mean self-serving. It always means caring for. The exercise of power for the good of others. You got it? There's... But let me give you the second one, which is more uh, connected to our particular issue tonight. And that is verse 18, a helper suitable for him. Helper. Now think with me about this. If you were going to read this unsympathetically and you heard that a woman is created to be the helper of man, what's the worst way that you could take that meaning? Slave. Slave. Yeah. That woman is made to be the servant of man, to be subservient to man, so that whenever man needs a cup of coffee, she goes off and gets it for him. You know, if, if he didn't get petrol, he sends her off to do the job. The lawn needs money. You go and make you know, subservient, a slave. Now, um, the danger, this is a satanic thing actually, that Satan twists a good word and makes it as bad as it could be understood and said, did God say that? That's terrible. What we need to do is be careful and think about what God intends by this word, a helper. Now, a couple of pieces in the Bible, uh, the word helper is used regularly, uh, Ezra, and the person, the one who is most regularly described as a helper of others is God. He is most regularly called the helper, which means that this position is not about subservience. God is never a subservient. He's never at our beck and call. He's never our servant. But he helps and serves. It's a position of great dignity and worth. And more than this, when you think hard about the nature of the help that she brings, it transforms and changes your reading of what's going on here. Now, how do you do that? By looking into what is the need that she helps with. Because verse 18 tells us the reason God makes a helper suitable for him is because of a need that's in man that she needs to help with. What is the need that she helps? Have a look at verse 18. What is she helping with? 
What's the lack in the man that she helps? Yeah, yeah, companies, yeah, we'll fill it out a little bit more, but companies are start. Um, so she is made to be his helper because he needs help. Right, first thing to notice. And uniquely, she is able to help like no other creature. Now, what's the help that he needs? Well, the immediate context, verse 18, is that he's alone. It's to help him in his aloneness. So the woman is made to be his companion. She is made to come alongside him. Now, company is not bad. Companion is not bad. Except there was a moment many years ago when my wife was a little unhappy with me and she said to me, you know what, I'd be better off with a dog. Like a poodle or something like this, because, you know, I'd come home and it'd be always excited to see me. You, it never gets grumpy and you get grumpy. And t- you know, if you just want company and all the animals got paraded in front of you, many people would just pick out the beagle. Do you know what I mean? The Labrador. No, no, so it's company, but it's a certain kind of company. It's the kind of company where there's a, there's a meeting of minds. There's a she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's made in the image of God with me. So that here is one uniquely of all creatures that I can share life with, that I can partner together with. It's a meeting of the minds of equals. A dog can't do that. But see, there's the beginning of helping us understand what she is made to be, a helper, Um, But the need that he has is larger even than company, if you like. The need is there in chapter 1, verse 26. Come back there. Now, the man is given a task, he's given a calling by God, and that is uh, that he would rule over the fish of the sea and so on. Verse 28, that's filled out. God blesses them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Three things are said, then rule and subdue the earth to care for it. Now, you dig into this a little bit with me. What is the task that he's called to do? It's not just farming. What is it? It's to be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth. Now, at this point, I'm going to get radical, right? I'm going to say some stuff that will probably freak most of you out. And uh, um, I'm going to say stuff that has been common Christian thought for 2,000 years, but it hasn't been common Christian thought in the last 70, 80 years. And most people under 35, under, under 40 are going, there's no way that's true. Um, but I'm going to tell you stuff radically that is true and I want you to wrestle with it. Um, now, our problem with finding... The road of the reason we find this radical and crazy, what I'm about to say, because we're shaped by Barbie, actually. Um, what help does she provide that no other animal could provide? The ability to fill the earth. Um, what she brings uniquely is the ability to enable him to multiply, to have children... Now, not simply as a baby factory, that's a terrible distortion. We talk about distortions and being unsympathetic as reader. But no, no, no. But <laughs> this is not hard to think into. You consider a man and a woman and their biology. 
you consider my biology. Um, a, a human, a man or a woman, has this incredible biological system that's independent. Uh, you know, my blood pumps, my, my digestive system works, um, my brain operates and so on, all independently of any other bio- biological system. I, I can make it all, it all happens in my body independently. I just need food to fuel it, but it all functions. Uh, my whole biology functions independently of anything and anyone else except for one feature. There's one feature of my biology, there's one feature of a woman's biology that cannot function independently. What function is that? Procreation. Having a child. I can't do that on my own and a woman can't do it on her own. We need each other. And apart from the interference of technical wizardry in recent years, the way our bodies were designed to bring about procreation, the birth of a child, is by the coming together of a man and a woman, no other, rela- no other sexual relationship can do this, it's only a heterosexual one, the only way a child can come is in the coming together of a man and woman in a particular sex act that is designed to be enjoyable. Designed to be enjoyable in a way that creates an even greater bond between the man and the woman who engage in it. Do you get the beauty of this? God could have made us fill the earth and be fruitful and procreate in all kinds of ways. He's God. He could have done anything. He could have made it so that the woman had to just cut her fingernails and everyone becomes a child. He could have done that. It would be very much easier. Um, but, but he doesn't. What he does is he creates a, two humans who have to come together in a kind of sex act that is intended to be pleasurable and express love to one another and actually strengthen the love bonds to one another. He creates humans like this because he wants us to need each other. He wants us to partner with each other. And he wants to create the path to reproduction through the radical coming together in an act of love in its best expression. Which is the picture of the beauty of the man's response to the woman. He delights in her. He leaves other relationships to prioritise this relationship. This is not the picture of a dominator, of, of one who uses and abuses. That is never, God is against the violent and abusive. But this is the picture intended of a oneness between a man and a woman that is only possible for a man and woman of the deepest kind. Let me explain what I mean there. You see, the oneness, the two become one, is not just a comment on their emotional companionship, which you could have between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. The oneness that's being talked about is not possible in any other relationship. It's the oneness of the sex act that completes each other. That The sex act may not always lead to conception, but the act itself speaks to the intention and need of the man and the woman to be joined for conception. And so it, it, fills our, it completes our biology in a sense, the oneness of this act. No other sexual act between people can work like this. Um, but further to this, if that act does complete itself in the conception of a child and birth of a child, 
that child's birth further unites the couple because this child is the fruit of both of them. A same-sex relationship cannot do that. It can't have that unity, except in an emotional level, but it can't have the kind of unity that's being portrayed here. This is why we were so concerned about calling same-sex relationships by the same word as heterosexual ones, because they're profoundly different. Whatever your philosophy is around men, women, and men, and men, and all the rest, just a simple fact, the kind of sexual relationship that a man and woman can have is profoundly unique compared to any other. And so to call the two relationships by the same name is is very strange. Um, This is how God has designed things, and it's truly beautiful when it works as it was intended. We mess it up. Um, Now, take care... Again, if you isolate some of the points I'm making, you'll end up with a handmaiden's tale. But the Bible won't let you do that because of the unity that's intended, the intimacy and trust that's intended, which leads to some massively important implications. Uh, This is just going to be so obvious, but here's one of the first important implications. Men and women are equal, but different. Men and women are different. This is the thing that's missing in feminist ideology. Now, feminist ideology is a very complex thing. It's had a number of waves. Uh, First wave, I think, was a very different thing from second, third, fourth wave. Um, But the kind of feminist ideology presented in Barbie uh, is saying something profoundly different. There are two visions of life. One that the Bible gives us that takes into account the richest truth about humanity as men and women equal in the image of God and yet different, profoundly different, and the Barbie vision. Men and women equal, but no different. The kind of equality reflected for us in the Barbie movie and most feminist ideology is the kind of thinking that lacks the nuance of the differences between men and women. And that has massive implications. Massive implications. Let me show it to you. Barbie, Barbie movie. And I think this is the real problem with the movie. Uh, and you'll get this even if you've not seen it. Um, the, the movie is based around the notion that men and women are just people. We are equal with no differences except in body shape. Now you say Ken and Barbie are different, but there's nothing inwardly different. They're just physically looking different. They really are just people in the model of the Barbie doll world, if you like. Um, Barbies can be, therefore, whatever they want to be. Doctors, lawyers, astronauts, labourers. There's nothing to constrain her like there's nothing to constrain a man because in the Barbie world, they're no different to each other except they just look different. And the thought of constraint on the Barbie because she's no different to the Ken is obscene because we're just people. We should just be treated as people. But did you notice, if you've seen the movie, a thing that was missing in Barbie world? Now, most, of, most people don't even notice that it's missing, but when you, when you recognise it, you go, oh, what was missing in Barbie world? What was the thing that was entirely absent from Barbie world? Babies. Wasn't a baby in sight. And that is hugely significant. There was no baby inside and so there was no need for someone to carry a baby within them. Though there was a pregnant Barbie but that was discontinued, gone, did you see? 
There's no need for a woman to have the inconvenience of carrying a child, giving birth to a child, suckling a child, being woken up when the child wakes up, having to care for the child and deal with the child's needs. There was no breastfeeding, no, no hormones, no monthly cycle, no menopause. And so in the Barbie world, it was possible to live as if men and women were the same because there was nothing that brought forth the fact that we're not. There's no babies. In the Barbie world, men and women can do whatever they want to do because we're just people. But here's the thing. In the real world, it's not the, not the case. In the real world, none of that's true. It's a fiction. Men and women are different, profoundly we are made differently by God in Genesis chapter 2 and it shows itself in the way we view the world. It did emerge in the movie, actually, the different way men and women view the world, but let's not go there for the moment. Now, some of this is hard for you tonight because very few of you have children. We're glad for that. Um, and that fact that you, don't, you haven't had a child yet means that what I'm about to talk to you about is not glaringly obvious to you. It's possible to pretend that you are like Barbie and Ken and Barbie and Ken world and just the same as each other. It's possible to pretend that because you've not had children. And the feminist worldview wants you to believe that you're no different to men, that men are no different. And they've attached a quality to it that the, 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 the very key to you living the equal life is being able to live like a man, live like a woman. Or, but that's a fiction. It's a fiction. So you have many compelling reasons to want to believe this ideology. But it's not true. It's a profoundly important thing about women. Your biology is orientated massively towards the possibility of childbirth. Mine's not. Mine's orientated in different directions. But every woman... It is orientated massively, not only, but orientated, you're wired. You have a womb, you have ovaries, you have oestrogen, you have monthly cycles of... Everything so much about you is wired like this. Now, I'm not at all for a moment suggesting a woman is reduced to that. Here's one of the good things about the movie. I thought it was really good. The movie ended with Barbie preaching a little sermon to Ken in a very lovely way that you're Knuff. <laughs> Do you remember? You're enough, Ken. You don't need my approval. Now, that wasn't an attack on men. It was, actually a, it was actually a sermon to women. I take it through Ken. I think what the author was doing, what the writer was saying was, um, this is how women live in our world, in the real world, like Ken did in Barbie world. And the sermon was preached to Ken to preach to every woman amongst us, and it's a good sermon. Young women, you are not defined by whether you marry or not, by whether you have children or not. Those are really, that's a biblical message. Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 tells us that a woman has a larger life. She is fully in control of her life. She's able to be involved in work and, and, and um, negotiate with men and all the incredible truths of the Proverbs 31. We've preached on this in recent times. And yet in the midst of that, Proverbs 31 does point out that the woman is still focused on family and husband and so on. But yes, it was a great message in the movie and I think one that many women resonated with. 
Christian culture has been wrong to reduce women to just their maternal part. Heard it? But Barbie and modern feminism is wrong to deny this reality about women. And the vision it therefore gives of our life as men and women and men and women living together is wrong. It can't work. Let me, listen, let me show you this. Again, oh, let's hope I can show you this. Has it come through, my friends? Yes, very good. Here's a newspaper article just a couple of weeks ago, uh, independently of all these things. But listen to this. A woman's biology has always been a fatal flaw in dominant feminist theory. I'm going to read it slowly so you get hold of this. The way a baby craves its mother's milk, the way a mother's body searches for the baby it birthed. Virginia says that um, when she first had a child, she had no idea the impact it would have on her as a person, how every time her child cried, her body ached to be with this child. There's just something profound happened to her. She had no idea it was coming. The menstrual cycles, hormones and menopause. It's all quite inconvenient if one is trying to work like a man. In feminist ideology, in Barbie world, women, because they're no different to men, ought to work like men, have careers like men, pursue whatever career they like like a man. But she says, the fact of my womanhood and the dimension of maternal babiness was very inconvenient. I cannot work like a man. The things a female body can do have been buried and ignored to preserve the structural integrity of an otherwise compelling ideology of equality that has transformed the lives of women around the world. Wow. She's not a Christian, or not that I know. What she's saying is, feminist ideology, Barbie world, has squashed the fact and ignored the fact that women are different and have a whole biology that's shaped towards children in a way that men don't. They've Squashed it and buried it because it's inconvenient for the kind of world they want to create. That's why Barbie World had no kids in it. Um, friends, we are in a time where we are being sold a lie. We need to see it for what it is and call it. It's part of the reason we react negatively to the Scriptures, but the Scriptures are honest about the, the reality we live in because God made it like this. This uh, same woman, she has a quote a little later where she says, I went into the delivery, she was pregnant, I went in to deliver my child, a disciple of Simone de Beauvoir, I don't know if you know Simone de Beauvoir, but she was, many decades ago, she was the great champion of feminist thought, and she said, I was a career woman, but having had my child, I came out of the delivery room a conservative stay-at-home mum, because I realised it was profoundly different to have a child. Now, I know that not many of you are married. The majority of you will get married, but you don't have to. The New Testament actually delights in singleness. And I just want to say, actually, Sarah, uh, who you saw up here with Warwick and Sarah, Sarah was a single woman until four years ago, but she didn't wait for a man. 
She was seven years as a missionary in one of the hardest places in the world, just getting out there and doing it. Because she knew that her life was not defined by marriage, by children. And I'd encourage you young women to take on that kind of... Don't be defined. Many of you, though, will marry, the majority. It doesn't mean you must. Uh, Know that you are designed for children, but that doesn't demand that you must have a child. But you are designed for it. But while you're single, let me talk to young women and men and finish. While you're single, young women, don't buy the Barbie lie that men and women are no different, we just look different, there's no other differences. This matters that you understand that we are different for the sake of marriage and in your life now. When young women grow up imagining the ideology, that believe the Barbie world ideology, that we're just the same... The fact of your hormonal experience is confusing. The the fact of marriage and children one day will be a massive shock to you. I was talking to to a young woman just uh, recently uh, who's got a couple of kids and I said, how has that been? She said, a massive shock. She said, I was unprepared. I didn't know what it was going to be like because she'd grown up in the Barbie world. Young women know this about yourself that you might be prepared. Now, work is good. Get a job, but don't buy the lie that you can have it all, that if you do get married and have kids, don't imagine that you can have a career and have kids and do it all wonderfully and well. Working mum is often a necessary thing. Many of our wives have to work, but it's not an easy thing to do. It's often necessary, so you make sure you listen to the world around us with a cynical air. Just be conscious that you're being sold a lie constantly. And it comes... We, we had a, we've got a couple in church who... Um, they're getting family payments from the government. A couple of kids, three kids. And they, they in their great concern to be godly, actually, that is, they wanted to start moving off that to um, not take money from the government or whatever. But what happened was, as her kids got to a certain age, she was moved into a scheme where she received a coach from the government who is designed to coach her back into the workforce. And the conversation went something like this. I haven't got the exact words, but um, he says, you need to get a job so that you can contribute to society again. And she said, I'm a mum. I am contributing to society. No, 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 no. You need to get a job so that you can contribute. But I also volunteer massive numbers of hours to help and serve people in my local church. No, 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 no. You need to contribute to society by having a paid job. Wow. Do you see where this feminist ideology has taken us? It's anti-family and anti-children. Do not believe the lie, young girls, young women. Um, But see that your life is not defined by these things too. The movie's good that way. God is the one who defines us. Men... When you grow up, here's the problem for you, I think. When you grow up believing the lie that you are no different to women and women are no different to you, it gives you permission, I think, to indulge in immature male tendencies to abdicate. Okay, so everyone keeps telling me that men and women are no different, you know, she can do everything I can do and so on. Um, Well, if she's fully able to work like I'm able to work, she can get the job. I can get mine 
And whatever, she can look after herself because I've been told all along that powerful women, women power, just she can go for it. And so men drift into never taking responsibility, never growing up, never having to actually pay attention to leading and taking responsibilities. Men, you were designed to take care of others. You were designed to be the one to leave, to take the initiative of leaving and forming a new family to create the covering for your family, to protect, guard and care for them. That's what you were made for, men. You were designed to particularly take responsibility for others. Now, that won't just switch on when you meet the girl. And in fact, if it doesn't switch on, there's no girl that's particularly going to be interested in you. You won't meet the girl. Well, no, you'll meet her, but she won't meet you. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, Young men, if marriage, if the Lord calls you to it, is about you forming a new relationship for the sake of your bride. It's about you recognising the shape of your wife, that she will have a vulnerability you don't have, which therefore means you need to learn to take responsibility and lead and care and provide. You need to learn those things. How do you learn those things? By getting a job, by being reliable and faithful in your job, by doing Christian ministries, taking on Christian responsibilities for other people and doing that faithfully and reliably and learning not to be lazy but actually to work carefully and well. Get a ministry responsibility amongst us that you're not paid to have to do and yet still stick at it where you just love and serve other people and provide for them. That will shape you to be what you need to be. You are made for that. Don't sell yourself short. You are not made to be Peter Pan, to drift. But for all of us, let me finish. Don't be conned. It's the air we breathe. The world God intended for us is very different. And it's a wonderful world. And it's a world that ultimately points to Jesus. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage actually, in the end, is about Jesus. About learning what it is to come into relationship with Him as the church where we might one day be, well, we are in the Spirit, united with Christ to know the intimacy and trust and openness and confidence that we can have in our Lord. It's a beautiful picture for us as Christians to walk with Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to be wise, thoughtful. Help us not to be deceived by the schemes of Satan around us. Help us to take what's good from these things but help us to see through the problems and help us particularly to live a different life. Help us to embrace the wonderful and good model that you've given us. Help us to see who we are meant to be as men and women and help us learn to live that well in a way that pleases and honours you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.